0: Dear Lord, thank you so much for bringing us safely through another week and for giving us this opportunity to be here and to study your word, to be transformed by it, and to learn more about you. Lord, I pray that this morning as we study your word, that you would teach us things that we have not seen before. I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed by what we see. And Lord, I pray that um, Jesus would be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please pray for me as I speak this morning, because it's a huge responsibility to preach the Word, as it says right here. I'd like to share this morning um, a message that is basically the result of some personal Bible study um, and some things that I believe God has been showing me in studying His Word, and i just like to share it this morning so that we can all receive the benefit. You may have seen the title. Eyes of fire and wondered what is that about. Um, and so, hopefully, by the end of the message, it'll be a little bit clearer. And hopefully, my my prayer is that at the end of this message, we would all be drawn closer to Jesus through His love and a greater understanding of who He is and what He's done for us. So, like I mentioned, it will be a Bible study. So I hope you brought an electronic Bible. I hope you brought a paper Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I hope you find somebody who did, because we're going to be going through a lot of verses this morning. First of all, we're going to take a trip. Back several thousand years, back before there was such a thing as the Internet, before there was the United States of America, before cell phones, um, even before printed Bibles like this right here, all the way back to the time of the Roman Empire. And we're going to go to a small island called Patmos. You might remember where we're going to. We're going to see John there. And it was a Sabbath day, and he was listening to someone speak. So right now, let's just turn our Bibles to Revelation 1, 11 through 19, to hear what he heard. So that's Revelation 1, 11 to 19. The text will be on the screen, just the references so that you can look it up and so you know um, where we are. Revelation 1, 11 through 19. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version throughout this morning. Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. He had in his right hand seven stars, sorry, 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Amen. So suddenly imagine that we're with John, and we see this huge, this amazing picture of Jesus. It's breathtaking, it's dazzling. And his, his face is as bright as the sun, his eyes look like fire. It's no wonder he fell like a dead man at his feet. But this is Jesus. This is our friend. This is the same Jesus who, in Hebrews thirteen five, promises to never leave you nor forsake you. Mark, the disciple, writes that when little children were brought to him, Jesus took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Mark 10, 13, and 16. Yet here in Revelation, we see a Jesus who's so bright we can't even look at his face without turning away. So how is it possible that this amazing being is able to be so close to us sinful human beings? Put that question on a shelf in your mind because we'll come back to it. Uh, But first we're going to look at how Jesus describes himself. He describes himself as the first and the last. So that means if we look far back into history, as far as we can go, we'll see Jesus there. And if we go as far forward into the future as we can possibly see, we'll see him there as well. It also means that if we look in between, he'll be right there waiting for us. So let's look and see what we find. So the furthest point back in the Bible that I'm aware of is Ezekiel 28, verse 12, or Isaiah 14. So we're going to go there. Ezekiel 28, 12. I'll give you a little bit to get there. Ezekiel 28 and verse 12. This is what the Bible says. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub that covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created, till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So, who is this covering cherub that the Bible is discovering here? It's Lucifer, Satan. Um, How do we know that? Well, if we go to Isaiah 14 and also to Revelation 12, we'll again see this same motif of somebody being forced out of heaven. So let's turn to Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12 and going to verse 13. Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says there, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, in verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So this is, again, another description of this same being. We see him here saying, he'll be like the Most High, and he fell from heaven. So when we go to Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, we'll again see this, this um, falling from heaven again. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So, again, we see Satan here being cast out of heaven. And this is the same being that we saw earlier in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. But now I thought we were looking for Jesus, right? We said as far as we go back into history, we'll find Jesus. So, where is Jesus in these verses? Well, let's go back now to Ezekiel 28 and noting specifically verses 13 and 15 where it says that Lucifer was created. Who created him? That's the natural question. Well, we're going to look and see who created Lucifer. John 1, verse 1 is where we'll be going next. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning... Was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here we see who it is that created everything the Word. If we look at verses 14 and 15, it's pretty clear that that's a reference to Jesus Christ, as I'm sure. Most of us are aware. So here we see Jesus. He is God. He is with God and he is God. And he's creating all things. All things are being made through him. And to elaborate on what that all things means, just to be sure, let's go to Ephesians, uh, Colossians, sorry. Colossians 1, verse 16. So we're seeing that Jesus is the one who created everything. We're asking the question, who is it that created Lucifer? And we're going to see how the Bible shows us not just by deduction, but even clearer that he's the one who, who created Lucifer. So Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, does any, do any of, the ver- um, any of the words in that verse stand out to you? principalities and powers. Have we heard that somewhere else in the Bible? <laughs> Ephesians, right? If we go to Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, we again see that term being used, principalities and powers. So Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, this is what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So now before you get the wrong idea, I'm not saying that Jesus created Satan, but Jesus created Lucifer, who became Satan. And it seems that in these verses, the Bible is directly cluing us in to understand that, that the principalities and powers were created directly by Jesus. So that means that when we went to Ezekiel 28 and we saw Lucifer there, there there's an indirect reference to Jesus because it says he was created. Who created him? Jesus. There's another clue also um, that the Bible seems to give us in these passages to see where Jesus is at that time. Um, Do you remember how in Isaiah 14 it says that Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. Now that's another way of saying I will be like God, right? But it's interesting that when we went to Revelation 12, we didn't see Lucifer fighting with God. We saw him fighting with Michael. And what does the name Michael mean? It means who is like God. So it's interesting because Lucifer says, I will be like the Most High or I will be like God. It's almost like he was saying, I'll be like Jesus because Jesus is the one who is like God. So again, we're seeing that when we go all the way back into history, we can see that Jesus is there. He is God, and he is the creator. But now let's take a deeper look into how Jesus creates. Um, We saw in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created through him. But what does that mean? Did he do it all by himself? Why does it say through him? Let's look at Revelation again to see... A little bit of more to understand into what this is. If we look at Revelation four, um, verses nine and ten and eleven, we're going to see another aspect of what this is—that how Jesus created and what it meant when it says all things were created through Him. Revelation four nine to eleven says, "Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever." The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their th- crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O God, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So here we see that the one who's sitting on the throne is the one who created all things. And the one who was sitting on the throne was actually God the Father. And that's pretty clear when we look at Revelation 5, 6, and 7. Revelation 5, verses 6 and 7 says the following. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand, of him who sat on the throne. So the one who sat on the throne, who created all things, has this scroll in his hand, and then the lamb, Jesus, comes and takes the scroll out of the Father's hand. So that was the Father and the Son. So again, we're trying to understand how is it that Jesus created all things, because it's now saying that God the Father created all things. Well, now let's turn to Ephesians 3.9 to see that it was actually God the Father creating everything, through Jesus. So Ephesians 3 verse 9 says, "And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So now we can see a bit of a clearer picture. Jesus created everything, God, the Father created everything through Jesus. And that includes everything that we see. That includes principalities and powers, that includes Lucifer, that includes the fallen angels, that includes the angels in heaven, and that includes you, and that includes me. Um, David, the King David, made that pretty clear in Psalm 139, verse 13, which says, You for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. So here we see Jesus as the Creator. We go all the way back to the beginning of history. And we see him there as the creator, the one who created all of us. But he has another role. He's more than just the creator. Um, So now we're going to fast forward past the beginning to the time of ancient Israel. And we're going to look at a psalm that I think most of us are pretty familiar with. Probably most of us could recite it by memory, actually. Um, But we're going to look at it in a slightly different way than perhaps we might have looked at it before. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 23. We're going to look at this very familiar psalm. And as we read it, think about the blessings that David is describing and ask the question, why is he being blessed the way he is? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here we see David describing all these blessings that he's receiving. He says, "The Lord is his shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? Jesus, um, the Bible says that in John 10 verse 11, it says, "I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep." So the question we're trying to answer is, why is it that David is being blessed with all of these amazing blessings in Psalm 23? So let's go ahead and list them. First of all, he isn't in need. He rests in peaceful surroundings. He is refreshed by still water. He's restored. He walks in paths of righteousness. He isn't afraid of evil. He's comforted by Jesus' rod and staff. He has a table prepared before him. His head is anointed with oil. His cup is full. Goodness and mercy follow him all of his life. And he gets to be in God's home forever. That sounds amazing. That, that is, I mean, what more could you want than that? But why is he being blessed with this? Is it because um, he's such a great guy? Probably not. <laughs> um, I think we're pretty aware he made a lot of mistakes in his life. Um, he took someone else's wife. He killed a man. Actually, he took more than one person's wife. Um, He killed a man. He was careless in how he transported God's ark. Um, He married, like I said, more than one wife, and he probably didn't do the best job at raising his kids, as we see that some of them kind of turned against him later on in life. But, the reason for Jesus' blessings on David is found right there in Psalm 23. It isn't because of David's own righteousness. It's because of Jesus, and it's because Jesus is his shepherd, and Jesus leads him. Now I don't know about you, but I sometimes look at my own life and feel hopeless. Does that anyone else relate with that? Um, sometimes life can be overwhelming. Um, sometimes we can be overwhelmed by our own imperfections, um, our own failures. But the basis of God's blessings to us is not on us. It's not based in how good we are, it's based in Jesus. We're blessed and we're able to follow God because he leads us. And it's, it's, it's amazing how it shows it in that psalm. It says Jesus leads David in paths of righteousness, and he can do the same for us. Like we said, David sinned multiple times. He, he made a lot of mistakes, but Jesus led him. And, he, and David himself shows us how to deal with that problem of sin. If we go to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 5, he shares there how he dealt with his own sins. (laughs) It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So when we confess our sins, what does God do? He forgives us and he covers us. It says that in um, 1 John 1, 1.9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm sure you remember how the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. It says that in two places, um, 1 Samuel 13.14 and Acts 13.22. But again, as we've seen, this was only possible because Jesus was leading David. It's an example of what Paul talks about back in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 10. It kind of explains how the process of God transforming our life works. Ephesians two ten says, For we are his workmanship, created in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God prepares the good works, and he leads us into them so that we can be like him. He is able to make us completely like him, as it says in Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I just put that up there, so in case you want to write that down, it's possible to be filled with all of the fullness of God, and that's an amazing promise to claim. So when God says something, we know it will happen. We can have confidence in that. Because the Bible tells us about his word in Psalm 147 verse 15. It says he sends his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. So in other words, when God says something, it doesn't just like half-heartedly go about happening. His word is not, you know, weak. It acts fast. Look at what the Bible also says in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So we can have confidence that when God says that he's able to make us like him, he is able to do that, and he will do it. So now let's go back to that question that we put on the shelf in our mind. Because remember, at the beginning of the message, we were looking at this description of Jesus in Revelation 1, where we see him with eyes of fire, feet of brass, his face as bright as the sun, and we ask the question, how is it possible that such an amazing and powerful being, who we can't even really look at, is able to be so close to us as sinful human beings? Well, we've seen that he's our creator, we've seen that he is our shepherd, and that he's willing to lead us. But let's look into Jesus' eyes to be able to answer the question more fully. So turn again with me to Revelation 1, verse 14, where we see the description of what Jesus' eyes looked like. Revelation 1, 14 his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire so Jesus' eyes are described as a flame of fire what else in the Bible looks like fire? well multiple things look like fire um, you may think of Hebrews Twelve twenty nine, which says, For our God is a consuming fire. But the verse that um, I want us to look at is Exodus 24, verse 17. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 24, 17. And we're going to see that the Bible says that God's glory is like fire. So Exodus 24, 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So God's glory looks like fire. It's as a consuming fire. And when we look at Jesus' eyes, we see fire. So we see God's glory reflected in Jesus' eyes. What do we know about God's glory? Well, when I was preparing this sermon, um, I discovered a string of passages in the book of Psalms that talk about God's glory and that link God's glory with his valuing humility and with his willingness to help poor human beings, humble human beings like you and me. So let's turn to Psalm 145, verses 11 through 14, and I'll emphasize where it says glory and look at what else it says in those verses and how it describes God. So Psalm 145, 11 through 14 They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Isn't that last verse kind of surprising? It's not exactly what you'd expect to come next. It's talking about God's glory and how he's above us and he's majestic. But then it talks about how he's near to those who are bowed down and upholds those who fall. So we see that, you know, humility, that that doesn't go together. Usually power doesn't go with humility. And greatness doesn't go with helping humble, poor, fallen down, broken down people. But that's how God is. That's who he is. Psalm 138, verse 5 and 6, shows us again this same pattern. Psalm 138, 5 through 6. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So again we see God caring for poor, humble people. Though he's the king of the universe, he is more than willing to humble himself and to come down to our level and to help us, because poor, humble people are are important to him. He may have a hard time working with proud people, but when we recognize our own nothingness, he is more than able to do amazing things in our lives. And this is what we see when we look into Jesus' eyes of fire. Let's look at one more verse in Psalm, Psalm 113, 4 through 9. Again, seeing the glory of God and its connection to his willingness to work with us. The Lord is on is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the earth, and, that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust, And lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home, like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is an even more amazing picture of Jesus that we're now seeing. In Revelation 1, we saw his majesty and his glory, but as we look deeper into his eyes of fire, we understand that it reflects God's glory and his willingness to be close to us. Let's look one more time into those same eyes of fire and see even more. Love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor the floods drown it. And that comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and parts of verse 6 and 7. So as we look even deeper, we realize that Jesus' eyes of fire represent his love for each one of us. So now we know who Jesus is. He is God, He's the Good Shepherd, He cares for the lowly, and He's full of love. We've seen Him at the beginning as the Creator, and we now see Him, and we've seen Him leading His followers in the past and in the present. But what about the future? Because He said He's the first and the last. Well, in the book of Daniel, we see Jesus again. This time it's in a prophetic dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar thousands of years ago, in which he saw an image that represented the succession of worldly empires down to the end of time. In that same vision, in that dream that he had, which Daniel interpreted to him by the power of God, um, we see again an image of Jesus. So let's look at Daniel 2, verses 34, 35, and 44. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a mountain. And filled the whole earth. And verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So, this stone that we see hitting the image is Jesus, it's his second coming. It's when he comes to, re- to replace all of our sinful and faulty and imperfect human um, systems with his eternal kingdom. And we can see him doing this again in Revelation. If we turn back to the book of Revelation, um, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And as we look at this verse, at these verses, let's remember what we've discovered about Jesus. This is our best friend. This is the one... Who in his eyes of fire we see love and his willingness to help us. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here we look into the not-so-distant future. We can see Jesus coming back to save us from this earth, to set up a better kingdom. Do you want to know what that kingdom will look like? Let's turn to Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And then in verse 4, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Doesn't that sound amazing? To be free from sin, to be able to be with God and with, the, with Jesus forever. But yet it sounds also unattainable as human beings, as sinful human beings, as imperfect as we are. And it is unattainable, humanly speaking. But as we've seen this morning, Jesus, through his great love for us, is more than able to make us like him so that we can be there with him. He's our creator. He's the one who created us. He's our shepherd. He leads us. And his word is powerful and can transform lives. He invites us to live with him forever in Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. In the quietness of your own heart, I'd like to invite you to think and to meditate on what exactly it is that you really want. Perhaps you've never accepted Jesus as your personal savior. Maybe you know that he can save other people, but not you. Uh, maybe you feel like you've done too many wrong things. Maybe you feel that he can't relate to you, maybe you feel that he can't relate to your struggles, to to all the things that have gone wrong in your life. But no matter what you think, his word has the power to change your life, to transform it. So if you've never accepted Jesus before, right now, just in the quietness of your own heart, I'd like to invite you to accept him into your life. Just quietly ask him to come in, and he will. Perhaps you have accepted Jesus into your heart, but you realize that you don't really know him. Maybe there are aspects of his character that you just don't grasp. Maybe you don't fully understand his love. Maybe you don't fully understand his ability to transform your life. Perhaps maybe you are one of the people that just accepted Jesus into your heart for the first time, And you want to get to know him better. The answer to both of these is found in a deeper study of God's word, guided by his Holy Spirit. So right now, I just want to invite you to make a decision to spend more time with him every day. I want you to open your eyes. Pull out your phone, a pen and paper, right now. Open your eyes. Pull out a pen and paper. Pull out your phone. Something where you can make an appointment to spend time with Jesus tomorrow morning when you get up. God's word, as we saw, it's very powerful. And as Isaiah says, it does not return to him void. So just choose to, your, to accept and to expose yourself to the power of that word, and you won't regret that decision. Lastly, um, I also want to make an invitation to people, to everyone here, to not neglect opportunities to spend time with fellow believers studying God's word. There are multiple opportunities that he gives us through Bible studies, through midweek prayer meetings, to get together with fellow believers and to grow in grace. It's it's through getting together with fellow believers that we're able to become more like him. Um, I know Advent Hope has a lot of meetings that meet throughout the week and I'm sure you all have friends and, and family that um, have your own Bible studies throughout the week and I just want to encourage us all to take the time to spend in God's Word, not just on Sabbath, but also throughout the week, so that we can grow closer to our best friend and come to reflect his eyes of fire in our own lives. So let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for guiding us in the study of your Word this morning. Lord, we recognize that we as human beings are are sinful. We are Nothing in comparison to your majesty and your glory. But Lord, it's that same glory that tells us that you want to reach down to our level and to help us to transform our lives and to help us to reflect your own love to others around us. So Lord, I just pray that you would please be with us throughout the rest of this day. Be with us when the going gets tough. Be with us when we feel without hope. Help us to turn to your word and to the promises that are there and to be strengthened. And Lord, we look forward to seeing you soon. We know that we're living in the last days of Earth's history. The signs that we see all around us, and even in our own community, show us that this world is just getting worse. And, Lord, we know you're on your way. You're coming to take us home. So, Lord, I just pray that you would do whatever you need to do in each of our lives, in each of our hearts to help us to be able to reflect you, to be able to understand your love, to be filled with all the fullness of God, and to live with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse